0: Listening to the Rainmaking Podcast. Hosted by high stakes headhunter, author, and professional speaker, Scott Love. This is the Rainmaking Podcast, and my name is Scott Love, your host, and thank you for joining me today. I'd be willing to bet that if you're in the business of getting business, you need to specialize. And if you haven't done so, if you were able to find a tight, specialized niche and a focus area you'd be much more successful. Our guest today is Philip Morgan, and we're talking about that, specialization leading to a desirable market position. Philip has some great ideas and some deep insights on this topic. That's what he focuses on. He's helped thousands of people who are in the business of getting business use specialization to find a beachhead that leads to greater visibility, profitability, expertise, and success. Make sure that you connect with Philip on LinkedIn, on Twitter, go to his website. I put all those links in the show notes. Even check out his positioning manual. That's something that I've ordered. and I'm excited about reading that. I think you're gonna get some great ideas from my show today with Philip. Thanks for listening. This is Scott Love and welcome to the Rainmaking Podcast. My guest today is Philip Morgan. And today we're talking about specialization leading to a desirable market position. Philip, thanks for joining me on the show today.
1: Thank you, Scott Love, for having me. I just, Scott, I love saying your full name. I'll get over (laughs) it. Anyway, super glad to be here.
0: Sounds great. So I like the fact that you have really developed deep specialization as an advisor to consultants on the topic of specialization. And we'll talk about your book later on. But tell me about this from what you've seen with those people that are in the business of getting business. Why do you think people should specialize I mean, it's too hard to not do it. I think
1: is why. Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about your background, but a lot of the folks I work with are—they're almost all self-employed—and they've sort of gotten there. I don't want to say accidentally, but we don't have any—you know—business training. Usually, we mm-hmm. don't. We don't feel like we really are good at sales or mm-hmm. marketing, particularly, mm-hmm. and so we feel like we need some kind of advantage. Specialization is that advantage for most of us. And I just, you know, I feel like emphasizing that point. If someone said, you know, we're going to give you some advice on selling, we're going to teach you how to sell, and we're going to set you up with this process, this this really, you know, kind of distinctive, predefined process, all you have to do is these seven steps. Most of the people I work with would reject that entirely. They just don't see themselves as salespeople. So we need some other kind of advantage and narrowing down our focus so that we're not saying we'll do anything for anybody, but saying we'll do this one thing for this one situation, this one market vertical, whatever it is. Right. That turns into the advantage that a lot of us need so that we can attract better opportunity than what is, would be at the average point for the
0: market. That's great. I think that makes sense to attract better opportunities. So let me ask you this in terms of specialization, and, and I'll preface it by saying that I used to do training for recruiting firms and consulting. I used to be a management consultant for the recruiting industry. And I would say that people could specialize in an industry. There would be some recruiters that specialize in construction or legal like I do. Then there would be others that specialize in a function such as marketing or sales, where the candidates are fungible, they can go from one industry to another. Mm. Do you think from a consultant or anybody that's in, let's just call it professional services, should they find one area where they should specialize? Should they be more broad in what they do, but maybe narrow in their geographic region? What are kind of the elements of specialization that you've seen someone in professional services needs to consider?
1: You need to think about several things. All of the things you mentioned are viable ways to specialize. And maybe the general rule of thumb is that you should specialize more narrowly than you think is realistic. Mm-hmm. It, ideally, it should make you a little bit uncomfortable, but that gets to one of the big foundational issues when you talk about specialization, which is someone's risk tolerance. Mm. Let me interrupt myself. Mm-hmm. We're going to get back to that. Okay. i interrupt myself and, and I'll plainly answer your question, Scott. You need to think about whether you have a particular head start. You need to think about whether you have a sort of an interest that is long lasting enough to sustain a more challenging specialization than you might otherwise. And you need to think about whether you're trying to do something entrepreneurial or whether you're just simply trying to maximize revenue and opportunity. Sometimes those two things come at the expense of each other. Mm -hmm. So those would be three things that would cause person A's specialization decision to be different than person B. The overarching... I'll just say one more thing and then we can drill into some of that. The overarching thing that I would ask first is how much risk do you want to bite off as you make the specialization decision? Do you need something that's a surefire? It's almost certain to work. If that's the case, you probably are starting with some place where you have a head start. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of access to the industry, a lot of contacts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People maybe already know your name and you just have some sort of relative advantage that makes that the, the
0: vertical or the function that makes sense for you. Yeah. What are examples then that you've seen from your advisory work to consultants on people that have a head start? What would you mean by that example? What are some examples of that? So someone has been a generalist for, we'll
1: just kind of go with nice round numbers here. Let's say they've been a generalist for 10 years and the sort of metabolism of their consulting business is such that they would work with uh, five clients a year. So they've Mm -hmm. had 50 clients. Again, simplified example here. And 30 of those clients are in FinTech or the healthcare vertical or something else. That for that person is a clear example of a head start they have a the bulk of their experience lies in that vertical the problem tends to come up when they're like yeah that's where most of my experience is and i hate those people i mean not planning a death threat against them but they just you know they've over time gotten to the point where they just they don't like that vertical that happens sometimes but more often it's just a process of saying really of just doing an inventory this is what i've done This is where I clearly have a head start. Do Mm -hmm. I want to double down on that and focus
0: just on that? So that's an example of what I'm talking about. So let's say somebody listening to this is taking what you're saying, and, and they say, I've got a moderate level of risk in terms of my tolerance, and I'm okay with taking a shot, but I want to know that at least there's going to be a payday down the road. And I think age of people is a variable as well. Where are they in their careers? Can they yeah. recover if they make a mistake? I'm 54 and I make different decisions now than from when I was 34. That <laughs> <bet> you do. <laughs> you, you know, Because I'm looking at how much golf can I be playing in the next few years rather than how much more runway do I have uh, left? So yeah. what what action steps should somebody listening to this right now take as they're trying to assess their risk, what their head start is, what's interesting to them, and where they need to specialize. What are the action steps you'd recommend somebody take as they're looking at developing specialization? So this
1: will be a a pretty high-level sort of pencil sketch of what you're asking for. In terms of understanding their risk, you know, actually the world of uh, financial planners, that's a place that's done more thinking about individual risk tolerance than (laughs) a lot of other disciplines. So you could find some sort of self-assessment on the internet Mm -hmm. that's coming from a financial advisor that's meant to help you understand your risk tolerance Mm. and just get a relative sense of how comfortable are you with uncertainty and how much of a loss could you sustain if it came to that? In other words, how much runway do you have? Right. And, you know, if you've got a year or two of runway and you're relatively comfortable with not knowing whether something's going to work out for sure, then you're on the higher end of the risk spectrum in terms Mm -hmm. of the people I work with. Right. So you would start with that. You would write down everything you've ever done, not literally every tiny granular task, every project you've had, every client you've worked with. It sounds so simple, but writing it down makes it more objective. It gets it out of your head and gets it in a place where you can sort of stare at it, interrogate it a little bit. It just makes it more objective. So do an inventory. That's step two. Step one is is a risk assessment. The third thing is to pull up something called the NAICS drill down table. Mm -hmm. If you just do a Google search for those words, I said NAICS, all all together, Mm -hmm. uh, drill down table. You'll find the NAICS list of industry verticals. You know, healthcare, manufacturing, finance, Mm -hmm. etc. And just spend an hour, you know, with a whatever cup of coffee or whatever, just looking through that in a relaxed place. It'll jog your memory. Oh yeah, you know, I really do have more work in that vertical than I remembered on my inventory, or I've never worked in that vertical, but I. Think I would like doing that for some personal reason. Mm-hmm. Add those ideas to your inventory, and then start eliminating the ones that seem too risky for you. And you will have a shorter list of options. From there, there is no plan. You know, it's make the decision. <laughs> you know, take some time to think about it. But Scott, at a high level, that's the general process for doing this. It sounds in. Im- I'm almost embarrassed as I say it because of how simple it sounds, Mm -hmm. but most people won't do that inventory step. They won't write it down, and so they won't get out of their own head and they won't get the objectivity they they need to approach this decision. What what do you think that is, Philip? I don't, I mean, we're lazy. It feels like something you would be asked to do in school or it makes you think of like career counseling in high school. I don't know. It's just a simple step that just helps you be more thoughtful about it and, and less emotionally tied up in what is the biggest barrier to doing this, which is fear.
0: You know, it's interesting. I found that when people spend time in a planning phase, and here's an example. Yesterday, my colleagues and I in my own business had a, a meeting where we took the process that we've been following since my colleague Brian joined us several months ago, and we put it in a flowchart. Mm-hmm. So we're flowing out. In simple steps, like here's a circle, that's the beginning. The arrows indicate which action, and you have each action step as a square, and the decision would be a triangle. We actually flowed that out, and it's a simple idea of taking your actions, putting it on paper, but from that one-hour meeting that the four of us had together, we came out of it with some brilliant ways to improve our process, and they were simple ideas, but we wouldn't have come up with them unless we'd taken the time to write it down and to really think about what we do. And I think what you're saying right here, I think in some ways it's counterintuitive because I can envision a professional that's my age listening to you saying, I know what I do all day. I know what my business is. Yeah. But when they put it on paper, then they can really find the magic. They might be able to find veins of gold. They might be able to see trends that they've been missing that could be opportunities for them. Let me ask you this, Philip. Do you think that people should be looking at opportunities based on trends in the world. Do you think that's a good idea or maybe just too trendy, so to speak? What what do you think about that?
1: It depends on what kind of business you want to run ultimately. Right. There's the Gartner hype cycle. This is, you know, a, a research mm-hmm. product from the Gartner Analyst Company. And, you know, it's mapping out where various, uh, at least in the world of technology, various technology trends are mm-hmm. in this somewhat predictable movement from, you know, a lot of excitement to a lot of disillusionment to a more stable sort of intermediary place. It's like a pendulum swing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would hate for someone to look at a trend on the wrong basis, like mm-hmm. look at it based on the number of really excited news, uh, news headlines that are saying this is the next best thing because it's almost too late and too early (laughs) when it's at (laughs) that point. So we don't probably need to get into a deep discussion about the nature of hype and, you know, technology adoption for folks to get the idea that you need to be careful about trends. Right. Now, if your business is a one that is what I would call an innovative business, meaning you're producing value by figuring things out for your clients, things that aren't already well figured out by the industry at large, and you are reasonably good at monetizing that, then that could be your business is making sense of trends. And if you're vertically focused, then the part that's stable over decades with your business is the vertical that you serve. Hmm. But the way that you really create value is helping that vertical respond to change and saying, okay, this trend with you know, remote work is here to stay. So we need to help you Mm -hmm. adopt to that. Mm -hmm, Or this other trend, it's a flash in the pan. You just don't even waste the time and money. If you know how to create value doing stuff like that, then your business could be all about trends. And in the background, you're focused on a vertical. If on the other hand, that's not the kind of business you want to run. You want to run a business where you were describing earlier, Scott, where maybe you're optimizing internal process and finding a way to get X percent more profitable by doing that. And that's mm-hmm. the way the business produces more and more value over time. Then I would avoid trends because it creates a turbulent environment where it's hard to do that kind of internal optimization.
0: Interesting. Yeah. You know, I remember seeing my uh, one of my daughter's birthday parties. We're at Chuck E. Cheese. And mm-hmm. they have this booth, a wind booth, where the kid walks in and they have hundreds of tickets flying around And the kid's in there for a minute, and then the kid walks out. You see them in there just flailing, trying to grab as many tickets as (laughs) they can, and they walk out of there holding one ticket. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I I think some people are afraid to specialize. They want to get it all. They're afraid they might miss out on opportunities. How does somebody keep that fear from occurring in their mind? If they're just afraid of specializing because they might miss out on something, what would you want that person to know?
1: Well, It's a sort of a combination of things that I think it really helps them to know. One is to know how many broken people are up on the stage giving a TED Talk. What I mean by that is how many utterly ordinary human beings (laughs) are in really impressive positions of authority because they've done one thing different and it's not that they lost 30 pounds and got in shape. (laughs) That's not what they did different. What they did different was they applied themselves in a relatively focused way over years. That's the difference. So, but knowing that those folks are really human, really normal people, I think helps. I think it helps humanize this idea of becoming someone who has expertise that's really valuable. Right. The second thing is just look, just to notice all the weird niche experts there are out there and realize that they have multiple lifetimes of opportunity coming their way. Wait, what do you mean by that exactly? They're not suffering for opportunity. There's yeah. not a lack of opportunity. That's the main fear is if I don't get in that cage. I've seen the adult version, uh, not firsthand, but like videos at, I don't know, Vegas of these mm-hmm. uh boosts of <laughs> cash flowing around. And you know, you right. walk out with however much cash you can grab. <laughs> it's just the exact same idea. I didn't know there was a kid's version of it. That's really right, funny. right. <laughs> anyway knowing that that strategy results in that result of walking out with a few bills not hundreds or thousands of bills but just a few that's helpful so feeling the pain of the generalism thing not working really well but also looking at folks who have specialized narrowly and i mean it really helps to talk to a few of them how's it going a lot of times they enjoy you know, that kind of outreach and that sort of curiosity about their work. So it's a combination of things. Right. It is at the end of the day a fear, and it's not totally invalid. It is possible to specialize in a way that doesn't work out. It's just so
0: incredibly rare. Right. What do you think, or how do you think the pandemic has affected people, their ability to specialize? Has it forced people to go a little bit more narrow? or to open things up? What's been your observation in that regard, Philip?
1: I haven't seen anything that feels like there's data to support a one-to-one trend. I do see, uh, do you remember when GDPR came on the scene? Right, sure. Not not trying to not answer your question, but Mm -hmm. that's that's an example where I can think of a few people saying, oh, what if I become a GDPR specialist? You know, I sort of focus in consulting I focus my consulting practice on helping people uh, become compliant with GDPR, mm-hmm. and that's one of those things that sounds like a good idea, but the way that actually resolved was, I think, did not really create the conditions for a lot of people to specialize in that. You know, from the legal perspective, I'm sure there were some folks who who geared up their their skills in that one area and went to work for the hundred companies where that actually matters, right? right? And that sort of satisfied the market demand. So with the pandemic, certainly if someone has supply chain expertise right now, it's a good time for them, but that's likely a transient condition that's not, I hope anyway, not long lasting enough to really sustain a career where you're saying my focus, my specialization is you know, uh, pandemic-induced supply chain disruptions. Maybe there's room for a few people like that in the world, Mm -hmm. but I would hate for hundreds and hundreds of people to think that that's going to be viable for them
0: because it's probably not at that scale going to be viable. Right, right. So once somebody decides, I'm making these adjustments to my focus areas and I've seen certain areas where I hold expertise and there's enough market there and I know people that can open up doors for me, Once they start walking forward and they've really declared that specialized expertise, how should they get feedback and modify their strategy? What would be suggestions you'd have for them once they start walking forward? How do they get feedback on what changes to make? I want folks to take a really lean,
1: sort of agile approach to that. Because one of the enemies of good decision-making is sunk cost. Mm-hmm. And this decision is no different. So if you say, okay, I think I've got a sort of a hypothesis here. I'm going to specialize in this way. And then your your first steps of implementation involve, okay, I got to get a whole new website. I got to retool all my marketing. I got to do, I need to write 10 really deep, in-depth articles to publish on my website about this new specialization. What I'm describing is someone who's stacking up sunk cost. Right. And then they find out well, the market's not all that excited about this specialization. (laughs) To to quote David Lynch, that's such a sadness (laughs) to see that happen because they have to walk away from that sunk cost, which is difficult for a lot of us to do. I'm no different than anyone else there. And it delays the iteration that you're talking about. So I'd rather see folks do something really lean, like update their LinkedIn profile, and stop right there, and then focus on trying to get conversations within this new area of focus, whatever it is. So overall, the mindset needs to be, these are lean, small, inexpensive experiments. And if you are at all risk averse, you shouldn't even be doing this. You should be picking the sure thing. But if you've got a little more risk tolerance in you and you're exploring something where it's not a sure thing, keep the experimentation small and lean and focus on conversations where you can actually learn something. You can't learn something from how many people visit and leave your website without interacting with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe Amazon can because they have the scale to do that, but we can't. So it
0: needs to be based on talking to human beings. That's a good point. And so somebody listening to this, they've gone through it, they've done their assessments and their own personal inventory about where they are and what they have and what they can bring value to they they understand where they are in terms of their risk tolerance and they go forward and they start getting feedback this decision to specialize is really good and they know now I can double down on what suggestions would you have for someone like that they've seen that you know and I always say I'm good at smelling money I can see where the opportunities are here's that vein of gold and I've been able to make adjustments over the years into certain areas and I've I've been able to find opportunities so, if somebody's in that place in their career, what next? What should they do next to really capitalize on their decision? Well, I think they
1: should, I mean, go with it. But I'll say two contradictory things. So, they should pretend like this is a life sentence. I jokingly use, you know, prison terminology. They should <laughs> pretend like this is a life sentence. Right. And at the same time, they should know this is a beachhead. This is a temporary landing place. You just described smelling money. Mm -hmm. Moving on from something that's working to something that could work better. One of the paradoxical things about specialization is with most of the clients I work with, they'll specialize and a lot of them make a good decision. And they have uh, two, three, four years of things are going great. And then they get into this weird middle phase where things are not going great. Nothing's changed except, well, one thing has changed. Because they specialize, they've gotten access to better and more challenging client work. Mm -hmm. And so they have to, in a way, re-generalize is the wrong word, but they Mm -hmm. have to incorporate some complementary skills. So they're now solving problems that have more complexity, which is good because there's more opportunity there. And this is part of their growth as an expert. But they'll have to sometimes go out and start to understand complementary areas of skill. Maybe you have to work with other people to do that. Or maybe if you're really committed to the solo thing, you learn yourself. For me, I gave a lot of bad advice to people specializing earlier on in my career because I did not understand the risk piece of this. I thought everyone had a really high... I thought if you were self-employed, that meant you had a really high risk tolerance. That's not always the case. There are people who are self-employed who are are actually somewhat risk-averse. Yeah. And that's been part of them being successfully employed. So I was giving them bad advice because I was saying, yeah, do this risky thing. And they would sort of flinch at the last minute because it was too risky. Hmm. This is all in service of answering your question What do you do after you specialize and you start implementing? On the one hand, I say you just keep going with it as deep as you can go. I think the world needs more people who are cultivating expertise, self-made expertise, I would call it. And then on the other hand, you remain flexible because you've landed on a beachhead. It's going well, but you're not done. And so moving on may require recruiting complementary skill sets or changing your focus slightly based on what the market
0: tells you. Well, those are great ideas, Philip. And let me talk about your book a little bit. I ordered your book, The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants. Uh, tell us about that and about the other opportunities you have to work with people who are listeners. And we'll be sure to put all of your show notes uh, or all of your links and in contact info on the show notes.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for ordering the book. I hope you really enjoy reading it, <laughs> So it's it's meant to sort of help people think about this decision the way that a a positioning consultant would. So to think about which way of choosing is best for you, to think about all the factors that impinge on this choice. So... The title of the book is The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants, and it it is meant for indie consultants and I think also is relevant for folks who are self-employed experts of some kind. Mm -hmm. So the book is me. I mean, let me frame it in the negative. The book is me trying to write a book that is helpful enough that I never get hired to help anybody (laughs) with this decision (laughs) again, to sort of put myself out of this line of work right? Right. And, and again, expressing it, in, I enjoy the work, but what I really enjoy is what people can do with their career after they've specialized and have gotten traction with that. Then they can start doing things like cultivating intellectual property, building a brand, right? Something, but right. you know, a sort of a personal brand for their business. And I actually find that stuff where I want to help people directly in a one-on-one way. So, not saying, oh, don't. Bother me with your positioning question. But rather, the book is, is my effort to, to make it so that people don't need an expensive solution, that they have a really low cost solution for that, that uh, decision in, in their business life. So, that's a bit about the book. You asked about other things I do. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you about the craziest thing I do. So, I, I invite people to pay me to run them through a, a set of three challenges that takes nine months part time. You don't have to come live with me or anything. Um, (laughs) The first challenge is to publish something on the internet every day you work for three months. So it's a daily publishing challenge. And we sort of repurpose the idea of writing to an email list as a way to cultivate expertise. Right. And the second challenge is doing some small scale research to try to move your point of view away from experience and towards data. That's called the Expertise Incubator. And that's the thing I want to highlight because it gives you a taste of how I like to work with clients, which is, I don't feel like I have all the answers, but I think there are are experiences that people can have that will help them figure out the answers for themselves. And with self-made expertise, no outsider could have that answer. So really, my services are about helping independent consultants develop their career.
0: That's great, Philip. Well, thank you for being on the show today. I like the fact that you gave us your three steps or three action steps. Tell me about those again. The first one was risk assessment, is that correct?
1: Yeah. The sort of the simple takeaway here is if you're facing this decision about specializing and you want to get through it, you need to understand your your risk. So, mm-hmm. find some way to be realistic in assessing your own risk profile. The second is to inventory everything you've done. It sounds like a grade school assignment, it's embarrassing for me to say it, but it has real power. Right. It helps you remember more effectively and it helps you become more objective about something that is inherently a very emotional decision. Right. Then the last thing is you're going to have to decide. So, you know, you have a shorter list. You've got this inventory. You've hopefully removed things that you know are too risky. Then you must decide and implement. And I wish you luck with that, dear listener.
0: Well, Philip, thank you so much for being here. We'll certainly have you back on the show in the future. And like I said to everybody listening, we'll put all of Philip's contact information on the show notes. Thanks again for being with me today, Philip.
1: Thanks so much, Scott. Really enjoyed talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Rainmaking Podcast. For more information about our recruiting services for international law firms, visit our website at attorneysearchgroup.com. To inquire about having Scott speak at your next convention, conference, sales meeting, or executive retreat, visit therainmakingpodcast.com.